I'm going to pray and we'll get started. Starting a new, a new series this morning. It will be a lengthy series. Our ethics series was a long one. Uh, this will be probably even longer. Uh, and in fact, this is... You, you can't do ethics without doing systematic theology. So this is vitally important. It's where most Christians would be most quickly able to benefit is to study this discipline. So I'll, I'll get a little more into that in just a moment. But let me pray. Lord, we're thankful for today. We're thankful for your goodness to us. We're thankful that once again the sun has come up. Once again, the, the earth continues to spin, Lord. And all of these things you were upholding while we were asleep, accomplishing nothing. And Lord, spiritually, we are just that weak. We can accomplish nothing on our own, uh, but you can be at work in all situations and at all times. So we ask you to do that, to be at work this morning. Uh, we pray, Lord, as we talk about something that could be just very intellectual, that it would not be viewed that way. That it would be a way for us to know you and love you and trust you and learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. There, uh, growing up playing golf, there was a, always a question is like, how could somebody get better at golf fast? And that's the case with any sport or hobby or anything. Uh, and, and the statement was always that if you spent a lot of time uh, focusing on your short game, chipping and putting very quickly, you would, your scores would improve dramatically. That was the general norm they used to say. In many ways, for Christians, understanding the Bible, understanding how to live, systematic theology basically functions that same way. If you become very clear on systematic theology, you can grow very quickly in understanding how the Bible fits together and how to live as a Christian. Uh, it's not the only important discipline, uh, but it's, it's an essential one. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Our, our text that we'll go through is this text right here. We'll have it in the bookstore. We have a few copies right now. We'll have more. Uh, systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. There are lots of Systematic Theology texts out there. There actually have been many published in English in the last decade and a half as well. And a lot of them are really good. Uh, really good. Uh, if, you want to, uh, if you want other sources to check out, old ones, uh, by fairly old ones, by one guy, Louis Burkhoff writes also a good systematic theology. Uh, newer than that, a man named Millard Erickson wrote a good one. Uh, Robert Raymond, John Frame, Joel Beakey, which my kid, one of my kids laughed when I told him that was his name. Um, all good systematic theology. Wayne Grudem's, though, is probably the best for a one-volume systematic theology. It's very clear. Uh, it probably is the closest one that aligns with our statement of faith. There's some little things I would disagree with Grudem, but pretty close. And what's remarkable is it sold 750,000 copies. For a Christian book, that's remarkable. For a Christian book that's an academic work of over 1,000 pages, that's almost unheard of in our time. And it's because it's very helpful. It's a helpful uh, text. 
So we're going to use Grudem. Um, at times, we'll probably look elsewhere for help, but he's, he's the one who's going to be kind of our guide, and we're going to learn from him. He defines systematic theology this way. Systematic theology is any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today? And then, going on, about any given topic. So the parts of that definition are important because... Systematic theology means we got to study, we got to actually know and look and think. And it's answering a question, what does the whole Bible teach us today? And so that question right there is important because systematic theology looks at the whole Bible's teaching. It's not looking at, um, so if we're going to talk about, let's say, the idea of Scripture in the Gospel of John. We can learn about a lot about Scripture in John's Gospel. Or we could do the same thing by looking at uh, Ezekiel or Jeremiah. But systematic theology is looking at the whole Bible all the time, looking at every verse that's relevant so far as possible. And then what does it teach us today? That implies that application is important. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So you can choose a topic... And if you go and read what the whole Bible says about everything related to that topic, you can do systematic theology. Uh, and so that's, that's what we're after here. I'll re refer back to this triangle, which tends to be very helpful for people. Uh, Grudem does not, you may, uh, does not explain this, although he would agree with it. And... Um, this is from a professor of mine named James Anderson at Reformed Theological Seminary, which is very helpful. So systematic theology is, what does the whole Bible say about this topic? So systematic theology, in many ways, is, is something like a fence. And here's where it's incredibly helpful. So if we imagine, just for a moment, we've got to ignore the words. Imagine that this triangle is actually a fence itself. And so when we start studying, say the, doct say, the doctrine of the Trinity, which we'll get to probably in the fall, what, this, what systematic theology does is it gives us some safe places to move about in. So the, the doctrine of the Trinity would say, there's one God, so there's one wall. And then there's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's another wall. And then there's this third wall that would say, well, and those three persons are different. They're not, I, they're not interchangeable. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Spirit. And what that means is so we have these principles, and then our thinking on the Trinity can stay safely in this little fenced area. But as soon as we start saying, you know, maybe, maybe there's a fourth person. Maybe it's a quaternity. We've moved outside of this bonds and we're into dangerous territory. So systematic theology helps us build a fence that helps us think biblically. Say like, that's a little, we've gone a little too far here, we need to back up. So systematic theology, what does the whole Bible say about this topic? Biblical theology tells us what's God's pr progressive revelation telling us. So there's a story, a development. Here there's a development of art from cave paintings to Rembrandt. The same thing happens in the Bible. We see more and more details as time goes on. Um, and so the story becomes more clear. 
And then exegetical theology is what does this specific text teach us? What's the focus of this text? And these three things, as I've said recently in ethics, are always pushing and pressing on each other, helping one another, clarifying one another. So sometimes we'll look at one text of scripture and it'll say one thing, but our systematic, our systematic and biblical theology will say, well, we've got to keep these things in mind as we interpret it. But these are important. They work together. But right now, in the coming months, we're focusing here on systematic theology. Is that helpful for everybody to think about? All right, we'll keep going. All right. Systematic theology is to be thought of in contrast to disorganized theology. So everybody is a theologian, period. Everybody. If you have thought about God or thought about things of, well, really, anything in the universe because God has created them, everything's related to God, then you're a theologian. You're, you're thinking thoughts and words and things about God. And so... But most of our theology that, that way is disorganized. Thought comes burning into our mind. Wow, God, God must have created everything. And then, uh, then a minute later we think about, oh, like, uh, I wonder how trees relate to birds. And then we, our minds go somewhere else. Like, what was, what was that news story again? And we're, our minds are disorganized. And our theology can tend to be that way. And a lot of Christians... Theology is disorganized. We, they, they know, it's amazing how many, I just recently, I had a young, young single man visit the church. I drove him away. <laughs> you're welcome. No, I don't know. I don't know if you're welcome or not. But this young man knew his Bible pretty well, but his theology was very disorganized. And he was, um, we'll use the word confident, very confident in himself. And, and so I started pushing back a little bit uh, because my concern was, what sort of impact is this person going to have on the sheep I'm called to, share, to care for? And my thought was, if I push back and he, and he responds humbly, we'll, we'll welcome this guy. But if he's going to be resistant constantly, then he just needs to find an, another church. So his, his theology, he was... He was informed by the Bible, but very disorganized. And so as I started to press on him with a little more organized thought that he hadn't considered, he didn't like that. He didn't like that there was maybe sharp edges at times about certain things. Uh, and, and that's the way a lot of Christians are. They love the Bible. They love God. They want to know him, but they don't want to think clearly. But really, that becomes an obstacle. So systematic can mean carefully organized. So to, we, we're looking as systematic theologians to fit topics together in a consistent way. So we don't want to say there's one God one minute and two gods or three gods the next. That doesn't make sense. But we say there's one God in three persons. It can start to be a consistent thought. If you don't do systematic theology, someone says, hey, tell me everything I should know about Jesus. Okay, I'm going to tell you. What we have to do then is open Genesis 1-1 and read Genesis 1-1 and then Genesis 1-2.
and then Genesis 1-3, and then Exodus, and then you keep going. So systematic theology is a way to save us time. It's a way to compile things together. Um, it, and that's what organization always does, by the way. Orga time spent organizing, this is the type A person in me, the control freak. The time spent organizing will always save you time in the long run because you'll be able to find things. Um, it also allows us to go into more detail. Systematic theology allows us to bore down in our thinking and think about things. So we can take this phrase here, this wonderful phrase, this wonderful truth that we should all think about and rejoice in this morning. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. Okay, that's a wonderful truth. Systematic theology can help us think, but what do we really mean by believe? Does that just mean thinking that Jesus was a historical person, or is there more to it than that? Who is Jesus Christ? Depending on who you ask, I see that hand, I'll be right there. Um, depending on who you ask, you'll get a different answer. Mormons will answer it differently than Jehovah's Witnesses, who will answer it differently than Muslims, who will answer it differently than Christians, who will answer it differently than agnostics. What does it mean to be saved? Does it just mean that, that Jesus has come along one day and he, uh, I don't know, threw you, literally threw you a life preserver? Or is it something else? Uh, Curtis, question, so comment. Yeah. Instead of starting at Genesis 1, mm -hmm. you'll probably talk about this later on in this, but an interesting thing that, that happened to me when systematic theology just becomes a way of thinking about things is you can tend to start to, you don't realize it, but you've forgotten where the Bible says the things that you believe mm -hmm. in systematic theology, yeah. and you just have a systematic theology. Yeah. And then you're like, well, well you know your systematic theology better than you yeah, and we'll get to that. And we'll get to that. It's important. Um, people can start to treat a systematic theology text like the Bible. That's their Bible now. Um, which true systematic theologians would say, don't do that. Grudem will say, don't do that, as we talk about scripture in the coming weeks. Um, Systematic theology allows us to be more accurate. We, we can allow, we can carefully word our statements very, very carefully in such a way that, to prevent misunderstanding. And that's important in this day and age. Words kind of seem to don't mean much. They can mean anything. I think I, um, they're in, yeah, I don't want to get into this, but uh, it's, it's causing havoc even in our own political and legal system. Uh, there's recently legislation that was passed and it had to do with either women or mothers. And in order to not offend uh, transgender folks, the, the, literally the statute laws written by our own legislature had to write a whole paragraph trying to explain who a woman or a mother is. Um, and it gets complicated. Uh, but we think words actually mean something. 
the, the other thing about systematic theology is that it has to relate to all the relevant Bible passages. You're not doing systematic theology if you're only looking at 75% of the Bible. If you're only looking at part of uh, the, uh, the, t the passages that are relevant, you've got to look at all of them, and you've got to let them weigh on you. Now, this gets, to, this gets to Curtis's point, I think. You can't use this organization thought as a reason to criticize the Bible's own organization. So if we say, well, here's the thing. Systematic theology is a little more organized than the Bible. That might be true in a sense. But God gave us the Bible not a systematic theology text. So God is the author of this book. Wayne Grudem is the author of that systematic theology book. God, God's book is superior and supreme over systematic theology. So we can't say, well, the Bible has weaknesses because, you know, it, it's just not as organized. Well, that's, that was not God's purpose. He's telling us a story. He's giving us principles. Um, so even as we talk about the blessings of systematic theology, we have to have this little uh, warning. You can't say, well, oh, since systematic theology is better, it's better than the Bible. Um, that's, that's, not, that's not true. Does that make sense to everyone? All right. Um, why study it, though? You will not be saved because you've gone through a class on systematic theology. It won't save you. It could be a means that helps you trust in Jesus. It could be a means that helps you grow. But it's not 100% necessary to be saved. And so we've got to be careful on this. So why should we study it? Well, the Great Commission commands us to teach. And to teach what? Jesus says, all that I have commanded you. Everything. So we have it. <laughs> How about that for job security? For us as being on Jesus' mission. I'll, I'll be done with discipling you, child, friend, church member, fellow church member, when you know everything Jesus wants you to know. Guess when you'll know everything Jesus wants you to know? In eternity. And you'll always be learning in eternity because God is infinite and you're finite. Um, but so, so there is a command. We have to teach you everything Jesus commands. Otherwise, we're failing you. Um, that phrase, the whole counsel of God, is used by the Apostle Paul. He didn't shrink back from proclaiming the whole counsel of God. People, which is remarkable. And that was in Ephesus. And we probably, Paul did not have time to read the whole Old Testament to the Ephesians. Probably did it. And, and the New Testament canon was still being uh, composed at that time. But he could declare the whole council, the most important things, the big pictures, clarity on thinking about God and life. And sin, salvation, and freedom, and all kinds of things. Um, he could do that, and that's our charge as well. Another reason to study systematic theology is our lives will benefit, Lord willing. 
So we have, you have, I have wrong ideas. We have wrong ideas about God. We have wrong ideas about the Bible. Some are more wrong than others. But because of sin impacting our brains, because of sin impacting our hearts, all of, the, all of us have some measure of incorrectness at work in us. So systematic theology can help us overcome that. The weight of scripture will help us overcome that. We need to recognize that when we resist certain teachings, when we don't know certain th teachings or we rebel against them, that's not just like we're wrong. Mm, it's not that big of a deal. It's a form of rebellion. Uh, I don't want to get my kids in trouble. But it is common to hear this from young children. Give them uh, a, a command. Say, please clean the things off the table. And you come back 15 minutes later, still stuff on the table. And the, re and the response is, I forgot. I forgot. And it's true. It wasn't malicious. wasn't a, wasn't a trying to actively harm me. They did get distracted. But the reality was they disobeyed the command. That's a type of rebellion. Maybe unintentional. Maybe not malicious intentionally. But the same thing can happen with us. We forget things. It's amazing if you read the New Testament how often people are told to be reminded of things, for pastors to remind people of things. So that's not, it's not just not knowing things. It's the same thing uh, driving, speeding, where you don't know the speed limit. Police officer pulls you over. Sir, do you know how fast you're going? Yes, I do. Going 55. Do you know what the speed limit is? No, sir, I don't. It's 25. Oh, okay. Here's your ticket. He doesn't say, oh, you didn't know. I, oh, well, that's, no worries. We'll just, uh, we'll, just ask, we'll just ask those people back there to uh, you know, fix the, the damage you just caused. No, they'll just say you didn't know. Um, no, so we have, to, we have to recognize there's serious business. This. So, and here's what's really helpful. The weight of scripture can help us overcome this. I, I was talking to a friend recently about a secondary doctrine in the Bible. And what I said, I, I told him, I go, you know, in this particular thought, like I, I get where those people believe that, but the weight of scripture, there's just too many other texts in my mind that keep me from believing that, that force me to believe this other thing. There's a weight that comes with it, and that's going to happen with us sometimes. It also prepares us to make deci better decisions later. When you think about things in advance, you're not blindsided. I don't know everything. I did not foresee COVID-19 stuff coming uh, two years ago. I didn't, didn't think much about that. But there was a system in place where I knew different principles. How do I think about government? How do I think about submission? How do I think about freedom? How do I think about life and death? How do I think about sickness? 
So all these things start to inform my thinking. In a sense, I was more prepared than a lot of people to think about those things. And that's why it's very, very helpful uh, to think about things in advance. You won't be blindsided uh, as much. It helps us put some of the puzzle pieces together. So sometimes uh, if you think about the world, the Bible, for example, uh, or any particular, let's, let's think about the whole Christian life. Systematic theology on the really essential things will help us put a border around a puzzle. We learn the really essential things. Systematic theology will help us fill in the picture, parts of the picture at times. In this life, we won't fill in every piece. We just won't know enough. But the more time goes on, the more clear the picture will be. So, uh, you know, maybe it's a, uh, a puzzle of a beautiful landscape with waterfalls and uh, evergreen trees. Well, maybe we'll see the waterfall, but we won't see the pool at the bottom until the age to come. But we'll know what the picture's about. We know there's a stream in it, all those sorts of things. Um, Okay, so a lot of people object to systematic theology. This has been a big deal in the last half a century. You Christians that study systematic theology, you're all just rationalists. Because, see, the Bible's a messy book. It's stories, and there's ambiguities, and there's things like that. Your, your conclusions that you're coming up with are just too neat. For you to say that God is holy and thinks that that's a sin, no, that's just, you're thinking too neatly. Okay, that's a really interesting thought, but Gruda makes this point. Don't you actually have to point out the actual mistakes we're making? Like where, where if this is all too neat, where are we making specific mistakes? Where are the mistakes when we're studying the Bible and we look at it? What mistakes are we doing, are we making as we deal with this text? The other thing we need to think about, too, is that God has infinite knowledge and holds it consistently without contradiction. So God does not think there's one planet Earth and at the same time there's three planet Earths. He doesn't think that. There's no contradiction in his thinking. And if there's no contradiction in his thinking, then it must be good for us to seek to minimize that in our own. So being too neat is not, does not mean something is false. Um, there are times where the answers are not as neat as we would hope. The choice, this is another one, and, and this is an important one, an objection to systematic theology people will debate about. Whatever you emphasize first will control your conclusions. So, for example, if we emphasize certain things first, we'll end up either Calvinist or Arminian. So, if you listen to Arminians debate Calvinists, lots of Arminians will say, well, look at this text right here. God is love. So now, I'm going to use that text to help me interpret other texts. And Calvinists will go, wait a second, we love that verse. We love it. We agree with it. But look at this verse. None is righteous. No, not one. None seeks for God. 
And so the question is, is like, are one of those verses controlling everything else? And where you start, does that basically start you on a path of an unavoidable conclusion? Um, so if you start out thinking a certain way, you'll be a Presbyterian or, or a Congregationalist or an egalitarian or complement, complementarian. That is a concern to be aware of. You have to think about that. Not all positions are equally valid. Tell my Bible students, Noel's one of them, Spoken Classical Christian School, like not all answers are equally right or equally true. We live in a world where people don't want to hear that. You can have your position, I'll have mine, they're equally true and right. Um, and we will inevitably have to think something about those subjects. So we might start in the wrong place at times, but then we're going to let the Bible correct us. That's the goal. And we have to think something about all these different subjects, Calvinism or Arminianism or church government or men's and women's roles. We have to think something. It's unavoidable. Can't just ignore it. Um, and so we might as well do systematic theology and try to have an organized way of thinking about it. Other people would say, you can't just get doctrine directly from the pages of Scripture. But we're, so we're going to assume that you can. We're going to assume that God is actually real, that the Bible truly reveals him, that the Bible is not merely human words, and we're, and we're not going to get into this word that means prolo it's prolegomena. We're not going to spend a bunch of time talking about principles for doing systematic theology. We're just going to get into a book that deals with the Bible and assume that the Bible is God's word. Um, there's a, a recent systematic theology, it's four volumes, was recently translated in the last two decades from Dutch into English by Herman Bavink. Uh, and there's four volumes, I mean, the thing is huge, I have it, it's like that much. And the first volume, which is like that thick, is prolegomena. Thinking about, it's philosophy, thinking about how do you think about the Bible? And it's all very helpful, but we're not gonna put you to sleep with that, if you do want to fall asleep, go buy that volume and um, try to weed your way through it. And it's a great, it's a great book, but it's complicated. So here's what we're going to examine: the major doctrines we're going to examine. A doctrine is what the whole Bible teaches us today about some particular topic. That's what we mean by doctrine. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the Word of God first. So next week we'll start into that. Then the doctrine of God, which is also called theology proper. Uh, the doctrine of man in the image of God. What's it mean to be human? Uh, sin will be kind of included in there because it's hard to understand man now without understanding sin. Doctrines of Christ and the Holy Spirit, so the person of God the Son and the person of God the Holy Spirit. Then the doctrine of the application of redemption. So when we talk about Christ, we'll talk about what he's done for us. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's ours yet. So then we'll talk about how redemption is applied to us by the, the Holy Spirit and through faith. Then we'll talk about the doctrine of the church. And then we'll talk about the doctrine of the future. Uh, and so as time goes on, Grudem will say things. And most of them are going to be dead on. And other times we're going to be like, Grudem says this. And he's got biblical reasons for it. Here's why we might disagree here a little bit, uh, and that's okay. 
And there might, there might be times where we'll say something, and you'll be like, you know, I, I see why that's biblical, but I might disagree a little bit on that. And then we'll say, oh, sweet, sweet you. <laughs> no. Um, okay. So another thing to think about is where we are in history, it, it can dictate what we emphasize. So uh, I'm preaching today on women. Um, there has been a lot of ink spilled in the last century about differences between men and women and men's and women's roles. Why? Because for the first thousand, you know, about first 1900 years of church history, pretty much wide agreement on what it was. And so you, you wouldn't open Charles Hodges, Charles Hodges' uh, three-volume systematic theology from the 1800s and see a huge section on men and women's roles. Because there wasn't a whole lot to discuss. It wasn't an issue of the time. Um, but Grudem spends time on that. In fact, Grudem is one of the big experts on that. Uh, we'll, we'll think about, so our place in history might mean we have to emphasize things that other people don't. And it might mean we get to ignore certain things that other people don't. Uh, and that's, that's just the way God has ordered history, and that's okay. We'll talk about major versus minor doctrines. The way we determine what's major and what's minor, and they're all important, is how significant is it to our thinking? Or how much impact does it have on other doctrines? So the Trinity is really, really important. It's going to impact really everything in here. So it's a major doctrine. The doctrine of the future, there's certain things about it that are really, really important. That there really is heaven. There really is hell. Jesus really is coming again. But like, how important is it to know exactly when Jesus comes? How will that impact other doctrines, other ways we live? Probably not a ton. So it's going to be a little more minor. Keep going. More minor. What are you doing? There it was. Don't just start clicking through. Okay. How, how we must study systematic theology. Our character must grow with our knowledge. Please, please, I had a, when I first was hired here, had a pastor at another church take me out to lunch, says, what, how can I pray for you? And I said, please pray that my character always outpaces my influence. Always. Pray that for, the, for yourself and for those around you. Um, our character has to grow along with our knowledge. You can know things about God, know things about the Bible, and go to hell. Um, you can know things about God, know things about the Bible, know, be an expert on the doctrine of holiness and not be a holy person. So our character has to grow with that. So, so we need prayer. We need God's help. We should be humble people. We're never going to know everything. And less knowledgeable people may be godlier. I don't think that those are mutually exclusive. Some people say that. Usually, people that have the simplest faith are really the godliest people. Well, maybe, but not necessarily. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that. Um, but we should be humble people. We should, we should recognize, and I want you to recognize this, every lesson we give you over 45 minutes, th there's, there's like 
probably hundreds of thousands of pages written on that by theologians. So like we're giving you this, the tiniest slivers. So we should never be believing we know everything. So we should be humble people. We should use reason. We should actually use the way God has made our brains to use logic. We're free to use our reason to make deductions, but we can't put it over scripture. So the Unitarians that, wrote, that arose after the Reformation, what they did is they exalted reason above scripture. So the Trinity goes out the window. That doesn't make sense to us, so it's gotta go. How Jesus can be fully God and fully man, that doesn't make sense to us, it's gotta go. We can't do that. Scripture has to be over our reason. We need to recognize we might deduce things from Scripture with our reason that could be wrong. But that doesn't mean the Scripture is wrong. So just because we think, oh, uh, baptism is a certain way in a certain situation, and that makes sense. It's scriptural. We've deduced that from Scripture. Um, our deductions could be wrong. But scripture, what scripture says about baptism does not become less true. And we must recognize there are times where there's paradox. And paradox is not the same thing as a contradiction. Paradox is sometimes thinking like, what? How do these things fit together? I'm not exactly sure. It's a little tricky for me, but I'm gonna believe it. Contradiction is two things mutually exclusive uh, against each other. Uh, and by the way, Historically, Christians have been very comfortable with paradox. Just so like, yeah, God's big, we're small, I get it. Uh, so when we, when we refuse to every once in a while embrace that, we're probably stumbling into pride. Uh, other ways we, should, we must study systematic theology. We need help from others. You won't learn everything by yourself. And we know that from personal experience too, don't we? When we're in a relationship with somebody and then another person comes and hangs out, like maybe you, you're, you're, uh, you're married, you're, then all of a sudden your, your spouse's best friend comes to visit, you haven't, they haven't seen each other for a couple years, and something kind of comes out in your spouse's personality that you think like, I, I don't really ever see that. And you learn something new because this other person has insights and experiences with your loved one. The same thing happens with God. You each have your own relationship with God that needs to be informed by scripture, but because you have your unique relationship, you will have insights that I won't have at times. Um, and especially the more, you know, uh, the more you know, the more that'll be the case. None of us know everything. We need to be thorough. We need to find all the relevant verses. We need, if we're gonna make, maybe GCF should write its own systematic theology. Probably a waste of our time. Probably more, uh, wouldn't be a waste of our time. There's probably better things we could be doing than that. Um, but the way you would do that is you read the Bible, you take notes, you summarize them, and then you compile them together. And we should be rejoicing and praising God as we do. So systematic theology is a great blessing. It's a gift to us. God has given us teachers, help us to think about the Bible in an organized way. That's good. So we cannot just be disinterested when we study systematic theology. You can't say like, oh, I'm just, you know, if, if it was a class on uh, 
parenting, then I would be excited. Well, we're called to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Commanded. So we can't just be indifferent. We actually have to care about these things and rejoice in them. Um, all right, that's the end. I've got, I've got a few minutes for questions and answers or comments. Fire away. Thoughts? Maybe if you, if you have experience in this, I'd love to hear how you've benefited from it in the past too. Adam, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 As far as just um, kind of um, prioritizing Yeah. Yeah, I have. Theological triage, the idea is that there's really core issues that you have to deal with first, uh, and then there's peripheral issues that are maybe less essential. So, you know, in the triage thing, you come into the emergency room, guy with a gunshot wound comes in after somebody who's got a sliver in his finger. They don't say, well, the guy with the sliver was here first. You'll have to wait, Mr. Gunshot Wound Victim. No, they, they prioritize on that. And the same thing has to happen with systematic theology. So our, uh, what's, what would be it? Our doctrine of church government, important, not as important as our doctrine of God's omniscience omnipotence, omnipresence. Um, we would triage them in that order. We, we need to spend more time thinking about God than we do exactly how to put our... Were the uh, ones that you listed there on that last slide, would you say those are the... Uh, I wouldn't say they're in that order. Um, I'd, yeah, I, I wouldn't quite. But there, there is some, some thinking in there. There is, like, the doctrine of the future is less important than the doctrine of the word, kind of. But, yeah, so... Other thoughts? John. Just a uh, biblical training that I already had, so I'm not sure if I got the verse where. Mm -hmm. And in his systematic theology, he talked about his prolegomena. Mm -hmm. And he said the job of the theologian is to construct a big picture theology mm -hmm. that would enhance and give meaning to perhaps some verses that would not yep. necessarily be yep. there, all the while submitting it back to right. part. Right. So that was, that was pretty That's a great point. So we and that would go back to that triangle I had, where we would, wherever nobody is coming to the Bible as an as a blank slate. Everybody has a system for making sense of the Bible. And so we're coming in with a system, and we're we're systematic theology gives us a system, but at the same time the Bible has to inform that system and change it a little bit at times if necessary. Uh, so we, we, want that, we want that system to be as biblical as possible so that we can understand the Bible as clearly as possible. Um, yeah, good, good point. Yes, Lisa. This is just a mere curiosity. Yeah. Seven yeah. Does that mean seven weeks? No. <laughs> no. No, ma'am. Yes. Oh, we'll be here for quite some time. We will not. So part one is the doctrine of the word of God, and I was looking over the schedule, and I thought we would get through all of that before we go on summer break. We won't even do that. So, um, and it won't be wasted time either. So, you, you, if you haven't studied any of this, this will be a great blessing to you. And you, you will be a blessing to the people around you as you think about these things. Um, Jim. Yeah, the young 
Yeah, okay. Um, so he, he came in and um, the issue was Calvinism. He was not informed at all about Calvinism. And he was very, he had a very simplistic understanding of repentance as well, which is actually more important to me than Calvinism. And I started pressing him. Uh, and it, it seemed, based on his Bible translation and some of his thoughts, that he comes from the same uh, background that I did in fundamentalism. And so I started saying, you, you, you are not truly trusting Christ if you're not repenting of sin. And he says, says no, that's, that's works. I said, no, well, why is it that Paul, or I mean, Peter at sometimes doesn't even command people to believe, he just commands them to repent. And Jesus does that, because they're the same thing. They're attached to the, they're the same principle. He did not like that. But I was showing him from the Bible. And, and, it, and I could be wrong, I'm not a perfect judge of character, but I think in this situation I interpreted his attitude well enough to know that I didn't need to deal with him gently. He was not coming as someone like, could you help me understand this? And that, uh, just so you know, this is a challenge that you can pray for elders. Uh, a lot of people love to come to churches and save that church from all the mistakes they're making. Uh, and and this, this young man was that way, and it looked like he, he would come back, and, and I made it really clear, like, he, he was welcome to come back. I was hopeful he'd come back, but I made it really clear by our interactions that it, he was not going to influence me his direction. If he was going to come here, he's going to be influenced. Um, <clears throat> and that might seem uh, proud, uh, but really it, it was... I don't think I was being proud. I was trying to be protective. And I was actually trying to care for him. But um, OK, that's, that's it for this morning. Dave, can you lead us in prayer? Yes. And uh, I'll be trying to get ready to preach. Um, thank you for being here.